unity. Unity as it presents itself in what we've read here, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 9, only really is there for verses 3 and 4. Uh, we may think that um, proportionally it's a smaller part of it, but I think this is actually a very, very big part for us to pay attention to this morning. Uh, we did focus on a lot uh, back in chapter 2, uh, but this is incredibly big. Eight times now, this has come up in the letter to the Philippians. Eight times. We see, I'm not just making that up. Uh, Philippians 1 verse 1, 1 verse 18, 1 verse 27, chapter 2 verses 1 to 4, chapter 2 verse 14, chapter 2, 29, and also chapter 3 verse 15. It has come up seven times before this. Is, this is now the eighth appearance of unity in the book of Philippians. Now, while our focus may be, feel divided on other things today, particularly uh, joy and prayer, let's remember that a, a desire for unity is a very big reason behind Paul's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. So let's begin with our first point, which is looking at unity. As we dive in, we, we pick up chapter 4, verse 2. might be wondering if this is an interesting place for the discussion of a breakdown in a relationship to take place. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul refers to the church in Philippi as his crown and his joy. On the whole, they have responded to the gospel being preached. So they have been faithful in supporting Paul in ministry. They have been reaching the lost in Philippi. The church has been growing. On the whole, they have been faithful so Paul talks in chapter 4, verse 1, of them being his crown and his joy, and then we get into chapter 4, verse 2, and we've got conflict. It might seem like an unusual place for this to, to, to be set within the letter. I don't think it is. The Philippian church, just like every other church, just like our own church right here, is what one of my old pastors used to call a hospital for recovering sinners. We are recovering sinners. We are saved. We are declared just at the judgment seat of God. We are to forget what lies behind, but there are sometimes emergences of the old man. And when that emerges, there can be conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ. In the letter Paul is writing here, he deals with this conflict between Euodia and Syntyche. Two women who, as we read this, while they are admonished for their dispute, they are still two women who have been a tremendous blessing to Paul as he preached the word in Philippi. For whatever reason, they've had a falling out though. We don't know what the source of their disagreement was. Maybe one of them thought the other's son didn't play nicely with her son. Maybe it was, you're not really honouring God in this area, being brought by one to the other, and that rebuke not being responded to very well. It, it, it could be anything. There's amazing the number of hypotheses that have been written about what the dispute was with nothing to base it on. We don't know. We don't know what the dispute was, but we know they had fallen out of good relationship with one another. And they seem to be digging their heels in that Paul has to take on this role of writing to them 
and calling them out in a letter that was going to be read publicly to the whole church to say, sort it out. Now, we look at conflict and perhaps we wonder what the big deal is. It's two people in a church. Surely they can just get on with it. Maybe Paul is just being a busybody, sticking his nose in where it doesn't belong. We might have those those thoughts because consider the, the context in which we live today. Drama, conflict, the loss of friendship, these are normal and they're even advertised to suck you in. Uh, It seems as if half the ads on TV are about relationships falling apart on reality TV. We see it happen. In a social media-driven world, we're almost immune to unfriending and unfollowing taking place regularly. The relationships breaking down are, are presented to us in the world we live as normal. But the relationships breaking down especially within the church, they're actually a disastrous thing. It is just plain wrong for the church to have these sorts of things happening. This is why Paul writes so strongly in chapter 4, verse 2, I implore you, Odia, I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And he continues in verse 3, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. A few things to note as we look at those verses. It's easy to write people off when they're not living fully to the standard that God calls us to live. Paul does not say here that these women are not saved. Paul doesn't say that. If there was a continued hardness of heart and unwillingness for these women to be reconciled, maybe that question comes up, but Paul is not saying that they're not believers here. They stand in the company of God's covenant children. But to put it overly mildly, their behaviour is unbecoming. They should not be allowing their breakdown of relationship to continue. But as I said earlier in this series, this, this feud, this debate, however we want to describe it, had got to the point that the Christians in Philippi, the church in Philippi was suffering from it. It had reached a point where the witness of the church in Philippi was impacted. The witness of the church in Philippi was impacted because rather than holding out life and truth and unity, people looked at the church, saw this conflict presenting itself as a big feature in the church, the gospel is not being presented well. Christ's name was suffering as a result of it. And as a church, they were also detrimentally impacted in that this divide was causing a a flow-on effect that they were not able to support the mission works that they should have been able to support. Unity between believers is no small thing. Eight times in this letter and countless other times through Scripture. It is a wonderful blessing, as we read in Psalm 133, to have unity in Christ. Inversely, as we see here, the consequences of not having unity within the church is grievous. 
people are hurt. The church is hurt. The world feels as if they have grounds to drag the name of Christ through the mud because of how believers act in these circumstances. When disunity is present, the church is not acting as a, a church planter, Craig Ott describes what the church is meant to be. The church is not acting when there's disunity as a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of heaven. Paul's hope in writing this is that this imploration, which should be a word, if you implore someone, I think it should implorate. This imploration that he gives should be enough for these ladies in verse 2 to be of the same mind in the Lord. It should be. But Paul knows that people are stubborn, that people don't always do what they're meant to do, and sometimes we respond slowly to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So Paul asks his fellow worker on the ground, man who's described as his true companion, to, to help you out here and he's sorted out. Now, who is his true companion? There's a few, two possibilities that really emerge. Now, if you read Acts chapter 15 and 16, where Paul goes through and is in Philippi, um, Jamison, Fawcett and Brown refer to that and say, along with most commentators, it's either going to be Timothy or Silas. Now, we don't know which of them it is. It may It's a singular put here. It's one of the two, most likely these fellas. We don't know who it is, but this true companion is there to help. In the end, the burden of resolution falls on Euodia and Syntyche. Now, again, we know relationships can be broken. We, we see it a lot. But what this passage reminds us of is it's not just an out there problem. It's not just an outside of the church problems. Christians see and experience this too at times, which is incredibly sad and grievous in the sight of the Lord. And one of the most common causes of these breakdowns is somebody doing something wrong by someone else. Now, whether it's more complex than that, again, we don't know. But there needs to be reconciliation. Alec Mottier's commentary talks about an attitude that should not be present as these ladies approach reconciliation. And it's not just these ladies, us as well, if we are in dispute with one another. The party who's been wronged cannot take an attitude of, I'm perfectly ready to accept an apology once it's made. And the offending party can't be thinking, I'll make an apology when I have enough hints that it's going to be accepted. say that as I say that now I think of times where I've had one of those attitudes depending on where I stand in the breakdown of relationship and the hurt that's been caused I think we do struggle with this now Maudier goes on to say something that doesn't make sense chronologically but does make sense spiritually both Euodia and Syntyche each need to make the first move 
chronologically. You might be wondering how can they both make the first move. If you're Olympics, you break it down to milliseconds. But they both need to make the first move. They need to move towards one another in an attempt at godly reconciliation. And maybe they need the help of Paul's true companion to mediate these discussions. As we look at this, I think this morning we can all relate to to one party or another here. Maybe we're in a position to to help a sister breakdown. Now that's a tough spot to be in, but praise God if he can use you to bring about reconciliation between brothers and sisters in the Lord. Maybe you're the wronged party. Maybe you're the offended party. Maybe you're not right now. Maybe you have been. Maybe you will be. Wherever we find ourselves, make the first move towards reconciliation. Unity in the church is lacking if we do not have this attitude. The consequences of relationships breaking down in the church is disastrous. They are truly disastrous. We must adopt the attitude of being willing to make the first move or the church will simply be torn more and more apart by our stubborn, prideful attitude that does nothing to glorify God. Paul is moving from verse 2 into the conclusion of his letter to the Philippians. In his concluding matters, this is important. The church must respond to this. Our names may not be Euodia or Syntyche, but this is for us. We must have unity in the church because this is what God has brought us into. And then from verse 4 onwards, we move into two themes that are very closely interwoven. Firstly, we see rejoicing in the Lord. Now, we just spent two verses with two ladies being named who have had a breakdown of relationship and Paul moves straight into rejoicing in the Lord. I think it's fair to say that his assumption is that they will respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and sort out their differences. And presuming they've responded to the reconciliation, there should be great rejoicing, just as there should be rejoicing every single day in the life of the believer. And as we move into verse 4, the, the, the style of Paul's writing changes a little bit here. It's more obvious in the Greek, and sometimes we try and smooth things out a bit in the English to make it make a little bit more sense. But the, the grammar lovers of Paul's days, so the people very different than myself, uh, it's called this style of writing a syndeton, which I had to look up. A-S-Y-N-D-E-T-O-N. And basically what happens in this style of writing it is very, very emphatic. Paul's implored Euodia and Syntyche, but then as he moves into rejoicing and also praying, he is incredibly emphatic. Now, what uh, the characteristic of this style of writing is that most of the connecting words, things like and, are dropped. Now, they're not all dropped, but most of them are dropped. It's meant to be sharp, punchy. It makes a point. Uh, Frank Fielman's commentary says, we do see the same thing today, in public rhetoric. Now, the example I'm going to give is 50 years old, but it does still continue today. 
Some of you may be aware of this speech given by John F. Kennedy, the 20th of January 1961. It was his inauguration speech. And he was speaking against tyranny, oppression, even war itself. And this is what he said, speaking on behalf of America. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. There's one connecting word in that. It's a sort of thing which is not only emphatic, but it's inspiring to listen to that sort of thing, isn't it? As Paul moves from Euodia and Syntyche again, presuming that they will, with the help of the church in Philippi and by the grace of the Holy Spirit, resolve their differences, he calls the church to rejoice in the Lord. Now, I referred to Acts chapter 16 to figure out who the true companion was. If you go and look at Acts chapter 16, you see that the church in Philippi is in a very difficult situation. They are persecuted. We see the miraculous conversion of the Philippian jailer, but Paul was wrongly imprisoned in the first place for preaching the gospel. This context continues for the church in Philippi. They live in the middle of difficulties. There are difficulties surrounding them. There are difficulties of the Judaizers coming in and trying to convince people of things other than the true gospel. They have the difficulty of of people within the congregation. They're fighting with one another. But even in the middle of all of that, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, Rejoice. We are to lift our eyes to the Lord. And when we lift our eyes to the Lord, we see his countless blessings given to us every single day. As Christians, we are saved from sin. We have breath in our bodies. We have food on our tables. We have clothes to wear. We have families. We have a church family. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. And even if all of those earthly things are taken away, you know what is not taken away? Our salvation from sin. And even if people take our lives, chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. As we rejoice, rather than pick fights or protect what we consider to be our turf, Paul calls them to let their gentleness be known. For us too, our gentleness should be known. In the Greek, this word of a piakis is an attitude, I'll probably pronounce it badly, I'm sorry to my lecturer if he ever listens to these, it's an attitude of kindness. See, in the Greco-Roman world, in our world today, You treat people how they treat you. Someone wants to persecute you, you hit back swinging. Defend yourself with equal and opposite force, go for it. Paul says, let your gentleness be known. Rather than the expected retaliation, let... Your gentleness 
be known. Now, you are in syndicate. Imagine if they were gentle with one another. They had this attitude of kindness towards one another. I'm sure their differences will be resolved very quickly. Likewise, for those of us who find ourselves in similar situations, that even if we are copying things from outside of the church, let your gentleness be known. See, when we retaliate, often it's because we're trusting ourselves to be able to keep providing for ourselves. But God truly has and and he will continue to provide for us. We we read in this passage that, that he will guard your hearts and minds. So don't be anxious in anything, but in everything in prayer and supplication. do we do with not being anxious and that's a tough one last Easter I had a week off with stress leave I was anxious following the events that our church went through in 2019 my body was not dealing with that anxiety very well at all And likely for the rest of my life, I'll have continual flare-ups of anxiety as my brain struggles to cope with different stresses at times. I don't think I'm the only one, though, am I? And not just here. Psalm 139, David doesn't use the word anxious, but he speaks about feelings very close to anxiety. Psalm 94, verse 19, which someone mentioned in our prayer meeting this morning, we do feel anxieties. Sometimes anxiety is a result of overstimulation, primarily through stress, causing our brains to do weird things. And when I say our brain's doing weird things, I'm not saying that condescendingly. I'm saying that as someone whose brain does those weird things. This is a challenge for us. I stand here this morning as a broken man who can say that despite my struggles, we still should not be anxious. Another way of looking at this word of do not be anxious is do not be overly concerned is how it's often translated. We should not worry about things when we have a sovereign God who provides all things for us. This is a daily reminder for us to trust in God's provision. You know, one of the comforting things about when we see this do not be anxious pop up in scripture, most times it pops up. It's not there to make us feel bad, but to remind us of God in the middle of sufferings. Not every time, but most times through the New Testament when this appears, it is written to the church in response to persecution. It is written to church about when they're about to speak before hostile authorities. These things will affect us. These things may make our brains respond in ways that we don't want them to and our body respond accordingly to our brains going off on tangents. We need to remember 
And it can be hard to remember when those things are taking over. But we need to remember we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of each and every one of us. He's been given to us to be, uh, the Greek word paraclete has about 29 different translations. He is a helper. He is to help us in many things. He reminds us of God's peace, even in the middle of conflict and trial. He reminds us of those things that Paul writes about here. This peace of God in the middle of suffering, in the middle of persecution, in the middle of hardship, the peace of God in verse 7, which surpasses all understanding and will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It is hard, but do not overly concern ourselves about things when God gives us refuge. Take refuge in the one who does, who will guard our hearts and minds. And finally this morning, we look at prayer. And we're meant to pray well as a church. Do not be anxious, but in everything, in prayer, but by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, that follows on immediately from do not be anxious. This is not only a brilliant help when we're feeling anxious. Have you ever tried to feel anxious while you're bringing everything to a sovereign God in prayer? Sometimes we still struggle with lingering effects of those, uh, those emotions and those earthly struggles, but it's really quite difficult to be anxious when you're giving it all over to the one who knows all things, to the one who made all things, the one who is powerful beyond compare. It, it, it's not just a command for us to pray, it's a helpful, loving, wonderfully thing for Paul to emphatically tell us about here. In everything we are to pray. That means our prayers are to be balanced. It means we don't only pray about the big things, but also the small things of life. We don't only pray about ourselves and the church, but concerns outside of the church as well. We don't only pray for our family, we pray for our friends and our neighbours, our colleagues. Sometimes we might feel this isn't worthy to bother God about, but we should never feel as if we should not bring things to him in prayer. We should not be ashamed to come before him in prayer, but in everything we do, we should be committing it to him in prayer. I love the part in verse 8 and 9, which, which maybe sits out on a limb a little bit from where we were before. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is anything of virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do and the God of peace will be with you. Maybe that sits a little bit out on a limb. As the Confession of Faith tells us, Scripture interprets Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter tells us to be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. And we have these things together things begin to fall into place a little bit more, more here. Not only are we to pray in everything, we see the blessings of God in verses 6 and 7, but the sober-mindedness from 1 Peter is not just 
being sober-minded in terms of not falling under the influence of whatever substance it might be. It is to be spiritually sober, to be spiritually aware of the wonderful truths of God and his word. To be sober-minded then, we must be in the word. And where do we find these things that Paul talks about in verses 8 and 9? We find them in the word. We find them when his word is shaping the church to be that sign and instrument and foretaste of heaven that it's meant to be. If we're in the word, if we're in God's word, we will more and more recoil from worldly things. And in response, we will find those things that are what Paul says here, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous and praiseworthy. These things are of God. And we're to meditate on these things. And I like that Paul leaves it somewhat open-ended. Whatever things are this. You know, even in Philippi, each believer there sees different things every day. For us, we will see different things every day. But whatever we see that meets these things, meditate on these things. Thank God for these blessings. And Paul also uses the word, if there. If there is anything, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy. That's as hypothetical in the Greek as it is in English. And it's just as hypothetical as it is in chapter 2 when Paul uses it. We know those things are out there. They exist. They're in our lives by God's grace. They are in the word. So meditate on them. Meditate on these things. Include these things in our prayers. Prayers informed by the word and the promptings of the Holy Spirit are wonderfully pleasing to the Heavenly Father. As we consider these things, we will not only pray in everything, but we will pray well. We will pray according to the will of the Father. Consider some of the things we've seen today. Unity. Rejoicing. Perseverance in prayer even. We should pray for these things. We should pray for godly unity in the church not just here but the church universal we should pray that no matter what happens to us throughout the week we might rejoice in the lord and his abundant blessings to us even in hardship even in loss even in disappointment rejoice in the lord and again i say rejoice pray that the holy spirit might foster that attitude in us Commit these things in prayer to the one who guards and protects us. Commit these things to us to God Almighty who protects us no matter what persecution or conflict we might be facing now or in the future. Amen and let's pray. Lord God, as we consider this short section that we've studied in this letter to the Philippians, we thank you that this letter that was written on 
most likely scratchy parchment with poor quality ink, has survived through so many years to still be accessible to us that we might see these wonderful, amazing spiritual truths that you had the early church, particularly the church in Philippi, know. We pray, O oh God, that we might ponder these things throughout the week, that we might be responsive to these things, that we might not walk out the doors here and say, that's done for the week, but may these things be evident all through the week to come. May our gentleness be known to all. May our unity be a clear, shining testament to the work that you have done. And may we never think that we can strike out on our own in any situation, in any circumstances, but in all things, in prayer and supplication, may we find ourselves before your throne of grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.